excited because today we are starting a new journey as we're going to be working through the book of Romans. We're going to be working through the book of Romans. And if you remember, as we worked through Acts, it took us about two years to get through Acts. So it may or may not take us that long to get through Romans, but we're going to work our way through. And I pray that this will be a phenomenal journey as we do work our way just through this book. Now, this book, if you know anything about Romans, it is heralded as probably the most dense and doctrinally sound, rich book in the Bible. And that's certainly true. You can find almost every major biblical truth in this letter from Paul to the Romans. And it is important that as we take our time, that we take our time and slowly matriculate through this book in order that we can gain all the rich truths that God is affording to us through this book. And so to begin, we are going to be looking at Paul's opening body of this letter as he proclaims his full confidence, y'all, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is where we're going to as well begin today. As we start, does the gospel have the same transformative effect on our lives as well? Does our salvation produce in us the same unashamedness that would lead to us making such a profession of faith here? Do we fully grasp the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the righteousness that has been afforded to us through and by God? And if not, I hope today we all will. Look with me, if you will. We're going to start in Romans chapter 1. We're actually going to begin in the 16th verse. We're going to begin in the 16th verse. Romans chapter 1, beginning in the 16th verse. It says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Lord, before we begin, we just thank you. We thank you for your word, God. God, as we open the word and as we hear the word, as we speak your word, God, let us hear this truth. Let us live this truth. Let let our lives be overcome by this truth. God, it is one thing to know the gospel, but it's another thing to be grasped, to be gripped by the gospel. And Lord, we pray that as we hear this sermon today, that you would do a work in our lives so that we as well, like Paul, may be unashamed, unashamed of the testimony of your goodness, the testimony of your saving work in our lives. Let us see this, God, with clarity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the title of today's sermon is Unashamed. And before we begin this text, we do have to back up just a little bit. Paul opens up here by confirming that he was the one who was actually dictating this letter, but he was dictating this letter to an associate. And as he does that, he announces that he was set apart by God to be used for the glory of God. He then expresses his desire to come visit the faithful saints who were in Rome, though up to this point he had actually been prevented. Therefore, he wrote this letter. But we can look at Romans as Paul's firming up some things that were going on within the church. 
This church was unique in the fact that it was made up of both Jewish men and women as well as Gentiles. And they had all converted to Christianity. Now, this diversity, while glorifying to God, naturally led to some challenges. Those challenges within the church that needed to be addressed by Paul. And Paul did this as a co-laborer in the gospel because this is one of those rare times where Paul is sending a letter to a church that he actually did not plant. He did not start this church. But let's look into the actual message here. How does Paul open his letter? Well, he starts, instead of saying, I am proud of the gospel, which would make a lot of sense. He doesn't do that. He actually starts by using what we call a negative statement. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why would he, instead of declaring how proud he was, actually refer to the gospel as something that he's not ashamed of? Now, I could preach an entire sermon on that one phrase alone, but I promise I won't. But it is significant. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Perhaps at first glance, we may think, well, what would Paul be ashamed of? But he is writing to people who would have been receiving this letter in the oppressive rule of Rome. So it wasn't like living in the South where there are lots of conservatives. There are lots of Christians where there are lots of believers. And many of those conservative Christians believe that Christianity is just the end thing. This was not the case. In this Roman world, declaring that Jesus is Lord was also declaring that Caesar is not Lord. And to declare that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, meant Death. It didn't just mean potentially being blackballed, but it meant that you could even be killed for having this belief. But Paul, in this most subtle of protests, perhaps says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Ashamed how? He was not ashamed of the gospel. Let's break down the ways that he could have been ashamed, but that he wasn't ashamed. And the reason I want to do this is because all of us have been in different circles where we both want to be proud of the fact that we're Christians. But then there are other circles where we don't want to mention the fact that we are Christians. I remember when Rachel shared her testimony, how she talked about the Lord bringing together all these fragmented pieces of who she was apart from him and gave one whole picture. And that's what it means to truly be unashamed of the gospel. You are not living these different lives based on where you go in space and in time. It means that you are consistently Christian everywhere that you go. That it is never a convenient time for you to flip that light off. So let's take a look at all the elements of our lives that we may be found ashamed of the gospel. First, we must not be ashamed of the gospel socially. In all of our relationships and all of our connections with one another, we cannot be ashamed of the gospel within our relationships. 
Now, if you understand the impact of the gospel, you understand the effects that the gospel has on all of your relationships. This is not a mere, by the way, shaking of those relationships. This is not a little disruption in those relationships. But even the gospel stands to destroy some of our strongest relationships. Every single one of us in this room who professes Christianity should should have a former life. There should be a definable line in your walk where you went from non-Christian to Christian, from unbeliever to believer. And if there is no such former life, then you might be living in your former life. That life, as it were, was filled with things and with people who loved who we were when we lived that life. We had common morals. We had common values. We even looked at the world the same way. And typically it was the fact that we did not have a relationship with God that was actually the glue that held us together. It was our own sin, ironically, that bound us together. You remember when we talked about growing and we spoke about how our values changed. Well, the same has to be the case in those around you. When you were not a Christian, you had different values. And the friends and the people you surrounded yourself with shared those values with you. But when you came to Christ, there is an exchange of values that must take place. And the people who valued you for your values no longer value you anymore. And as those values change, people's thoughts of you change as well. This is not, by the way just an effect of the gospel. Don't think this is just an effect of the gospel. But Jesus says that this is the promise of the gospel. The promise of the gospel is that your relationships will be disrupted. What does Jesus say in Matthew 10 and 34? He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus says here that friends and family members would become enemies to us as a result of the gospel. That is because of the transformative effect that the gospel has on us. It forces you to change. It makes you change. And the person that you were before is distinctively different than who you are now. But there is also at times, if we're honest, a shame and even an embarrassment for that transformation. Why? 
Because sometimes the gospel and our commitment to Christ makes us choose things in a way that the world would never choose things. When you're a young man who is a Christian or even older, it doesn't make sense that you are not flaunting your sexual prowess around the world for every welcoming woman. What straight man would reasonably want to commit himself to a woman for the rest of his life? One woman. Or a woman who commits herself biblically to one man and submitting to him as she does the Lord. The worldly women, women around you may say that you need to be independent. You need to be a boss. You need to wear the proverbial and metaphorical pants. Our unashamedness does not typically show up in all of these dramatic and momentous occasions. It shows up in our everyday commitment to Christ, even when it comes at the expense of our most dear relationships. If you are a kid, it is choosing not to join in when the other kids are living or talking in an unbecoming way. It is choosing as an adult, a young adult, to defer being overtaken with the sins and activities of your peers over fellowship with the other believers. It is in singleness, patiently waiting and seeking God's will when others want you to flaunt what you got. It is choosing as a husband or a wife to dedicate yourself to your home instead of dedicating yourself to your friends. And it is in older age committing to surround yourself with people who find joy in life, not just the people who complain about life. Secondly, we must not be ashamed of the gospel politically and governmentally. We must not be ashamed of the gospel politically and governmentally. Every space of time has had moments when the church came in direct conflict with the government. If you remember in the Bible, when Herod was in an incestuous relationship with his stepdaughter, many of the Christians around him were afraid to call him out because of his sin, but not John the Baptist. It was John the Baptist who stood out against him and his wickedness, and it led to him losing his head. Last week, my dad preached about how Paul, when faced with the challenge of speaking to Agrippa, stood before him and declared the truth and shared the gospel, even though it could have resulted in a loss of life. More recently, we have seen faithful Christians in the 1960s stand up and oppose the unjust actions of the government officials against people of color. And even when political leaders pass laws that are in direct conflict with Christian values, then it, it, it has been the duty of believers to obey God, to which Peter says, after being threatened to stop speaking of the name of Jesus, that he could but only speak of Jesus, and that he must obey God rather than man. While Christians have been called to faithfully submit to the government, we have also been called to submit to the highest authority, which is in Christ. And even when we have been called bigots or old school or phobes of all kinds of time, we must obey God rather than men. 
We must not capitulate. We must not compromise to what the world thinks is right because the Bible makes it clear. There is a way that seems right. But the end of that way leads to destruction. Man has a way to them that appears right, but we as believers must stand firm against such a way. Again, the test of our faithfulness to God is our certainty that we are judged in no higher court than that court of Christ. And Paul demonstrated this continuously in his relationship with the Lord. Number three, we must not be ashamed of the gospel theologically. Now, I don't want you to think I'm trying to be all deep. Y'all know how deep I can be, but I ain't trying to be all deep this time, I promise. But the root of Paul's unashamed approach was that he knew that the gospel was the truth. Jesus had overcome his will while on the road to Damascus, while he was breathing murderous threats against Christians. Jesus saved him. He gives this reasoning in his four. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. The means of the unbeliever coming to faith is in them hearing the gospel. So let me tell it to you like this. Maybe that doesn't make sense to you, but maybe this sounds a little bit more reasonable. If you were in a pool and you were drowning and you're floating and then treading water, floating and then treading, and just as it feels like you're about to go under, you reach your hand up one final time and a hand grabs yours and pulls you out of the water and you take a glance at the individual as you come to yourself. Being so grateful for this new lease on life, you would naturally want to tell everyone how this person, let's call this person Bill. You want to tell everybody how Bill pulled you out of the water. But then, as you tell other people about how Bill pulls you out of the water, you start to realize that people don't see Bill the way you see Bill. First, they question if you're sure that it was really Bill because they'd heard other people had negative experiences with Bill and they weren't great. Then they would probably ask you, are you sure? Are you sure you were actually drowning? Maybe you weren't really drowning. Maybe you thought you were drowning. Maybe you were desperate and now you think something happened to you that didn't really happen. But if you know that you were drowning and you know that you were saved, then it wouldn't matter what someone else said because you would know who pulled you out the water. Likewise, if we are Christians and we know that we were sinking in the sea of our own sin and if we know that Jesus pulled us out of the water, then why would we have any shame for that? Y'all, it would be nothing that anybody could tell us about God. It would be nothing that anybody could tell us about this world, could tell us about ourselves that would make us question what we knew happened because I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. 
very deeply, staying within, sinking to rise no more. Then the master of the sea heard my despairing cry. From the waters he lifted me. Now safe am I. That is the most glorious news. And almost every time that Jesus has a transformative encounter with someone, they couldn't wait to tell others about what they had experienced. Let's think about that. They're so excited about what happened that they couldn't help but tell other people. There is no shame. And Paul maintained miraculously that same fervency and fire from the time he was converted through the length of his life. How? Because of what he says about the gospel. It is the power of God. There are probably some of us in this room right now who do not feel that same fervency. We do not feel that same fire, and we may even be turtling in our walk with Christ. If that is you, then you need to remember the depths of your lostness. That power that raised us to the newness of life is also holding us in the care of Christ, sanctifying us in our walk with him. Paul then says that this power that we have as believers was extended first to the Jew and then to all of us as Gentiles. This confirms that the gospel is for all people groups, and that's significant. None are restricted from the accessibility of the gospel, and that is the great hope for us. This is the reminder of why. We have nothing to be ashamed about. If the message of Christ was only for the white folks or only for the black folks or only for the rich people or only for the poor people, then there is a level of embarrassment because sometimes you're going to be talking to people who just couldn't be saved. You feel shame because maybe your message just isn't for them. No fault of their own. But... If you know that the gospel is for all people of all times, of all generations, then there is no shame to be had at all. There is pride because there is in the world no other message like that of the gospel. But the sad truth is if we're being honest, Many of us in this room go throughout our days without breathing a word of the gospel to another soul. And what is our excuse? They're bountiful. I can't lose my job. I don't want to offend anyone. I don't know what to say. And listen, I don't want anybody to feel condemned for feeling like that. Those can feel like legitimate reasons. And so I want to help you understand how to overcome them. First, I don't want to lose my job. Well, I think that idea that we would immediately be fired for sharing the gospel probably means that we have no clue how to share the gospel in a careful and gracious way. Think about it. While Paul was in prison, he would address the atrocities of Rome towards the other Christians 
and he would talk about Rome in his letters. But he never called them Rome. He would call them Babylon, so that if people uncovered his letters, they wouldn't seize the letters and stop the gospel from going forth. He was being, as we have all been called to be, wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. If the only way you know how to communicate the gospel is reckless, then you need to learn the subtleties required to share the gospel. But before you feel like you're off the hook, even in that, if, if you stand to lose your job for declaring the truth, I find that Peter, who was crucified, would have a hard time hearing our excuses. John, who was exiled to Patmos, would probably have a hard time as well listening to our excuses for not sharing the gospel. Paul, who remained a prisoner and eventually beheaded, James, who was beheaded, would all probably have a hard time understanding why we wouldn't be willing to lose our jobs and they lost their lives. And I can imagine that might be an awkward conversation with our risen Savior to explain how he could give up his life, but we couldn't even give up our job. While your job may be important, we must all remember that God is our means for everything. And we must not be more dedicated to the means than God himself. The next one. I don't want to offend anyone. Listen, if you are a Christian, you are not called to be offensive. But the truth is that Jesus is offensive. What Jesus says is offensive and what the gospel says is offensive. But if you want to know what would truly be offensive, I can tell you what. It is that you knowing that someone you love is living in opposition to God and that they are on a path to destruction and you have the truth of the gospel and see the trajectory of their life and you say nothing. That's offensive. To not care whether or not somebody spends an eternity in hell because you don't want them to dislike you, that's offensive. That's offensive to them, but that's offensive to God. If you are going to be an unashamed Christian, then there is no room for you to desire to be liked. In fact, Jesus says it like this in Luke 6:26: Woe to you, woe to you, when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did of the false prophets. As Christians should be blameless, upright, and well-respected in society, but that doesn't mean that the people in the world are going to like you. When you proclaim the truth of God, even when saturated with love, it will cause the evil ones to hate you. Lastly, I don't know what to say. Many people feel shame, not because of the truth of the gospel, but I've learned and in my experience that they just don't know what to say. They're embarrassed because they don't know how to articulate the gospel. They don't know how to say it in a way that people would receive it. But I want to tell you this. It doesn't have to be deep 
It doesn't have to be complex. But every believer should be able, as the Bible says, to give an answer to someone who asks for our reason for our faith. How do we ultimately overcome all these challenges? It's a reminder from the gospel that Paul uses here. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Why do the righteous live by faith? Because if we lived by the sight of this world, then of course we would be shamed. As the scripture says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, just this life, we are men most to be pitied. If there were no revelation of the resurrection, the establishment of the new earth, then yeah, we'd be put to shame. There'd be no reason for our hope. But as believers, we do not live with our faith and hope in the present. We live with our hope and our faith in the resurrection of the dead. When Martha, Lazarus' sister, confronted Jesus, upset that he had not gotten there quickly enough, She confronts Jesus, y'all, Jesus. She confronts him with no shame, no reservations, no timidity. Why? Because of where her hope was. Jesus says, you'll see your brother again. And she says, without even thinking, I know I will see my brother again in the resurrection. Her faith was in that Lazarus, like us all, will be raised on the final day. And that is where her hope was placed. But because her hope was there, she could boldly come to Christ and proclaim, but if you had been here, her hope was in the resurrection. And the only way Anyone can boldly go in the world or even to the throne of God is because they have hope in the eternal God and are, by all accounts, unashamed of him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word. God, we thank you that the gospel is the power of God to salvation. Lord, there are so many depths of truth that we could have gone into, but ultimately, God, all of us, if not careful, stand to find something to be ashamed of. All of us, if we are not diligent, God, will be embarrassed. We'll try to live fragmented lives, God, but we pray that you would bring together the pieces of these lives that we are attempting to live and bring them into unity. Let us live out our hope in you in a real way so that others may see our conviction in you. God, if we know that we have been saved, if we know that we were pulled out of the depths of our sin, out of that miry clay, then why would we not go around telling everyone and anyone about what you've done? 
God, let us resist the fear of loss, losing our job. Let us resist the fear of losing friendships. But let us boldly proclaim the truth. Because the warning to us is if we deny you in how we live and in what we say, then you will deny us. You will deny us. So God, let this conviction in us for you and the gospel be real, true, sincere, and let us go on unashamed. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.